Well, isn't that encouraging? Yes, that is encouraging. The God of angel armies is always by my side. Amen. Let that sink in a bit and see what happens. Hey, welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Welcome to First Church. We are glad you're here. Tim, Christy, Seth, thank you for leading us in worship this morning. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Now, as you're turning there, I want to start in Revelation chapter 1, where the author says, Grace and peace to you from the one who is, the one who always was, and the one who is still to come. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, the one who always was, and the one who is still to come. Pretty straightforward, yes? It's safe. It's understandable, and it warms our heart. Now, if that's how the author of this book started, why couldn't he have kept it that way? Have you read the book of Revelation? I mean, we're in, this is week six in the sermon series. This is a crazy book. There's some weird stuff that goes on in here. And I wish the author would have just said, hey, grace and peace to you from the one who is, the one who was, and it was who is to come. Amen. And let's go to the end. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen? Amen. And no, there is some crazy stuff going on in here. I'll be honest, the turn of the year, beginning of 2015, when I was looking at the texts for this year, we're using a curriculum called Explore the Bible, so we knew what would be preached each Sunday. I smiled when I saw that the book of Revelation was going to be teached, taught. (laughs) See, now, now we're engaged. I'll say a few wrong words and then we'll laugh and it'll be good. I smiled when I saw that Rod Miller would be teaching most of the book of Revelation. I knew he would do a fantastic job. And he did. But I loved his emphasis when he talked about this book is something we should not be scared of. It's a book that simply reveals who Jesus is as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a book that promises this Jesus will return and it says until that time we should be overcomers. Ron taught this, right? Amen. Now, I sat and listened to Ron's sermons, all five of them, from Revelation this past week, and I was thankful. I was thankful that he covered the hard stuff. And he told you James has the easy stuff coming up. I don't know if I agree with him, because I don't know if any message from the book of Revelation is easy. You'll hear me say one of his favorite phrases a few times this morning. I don't know. We don't know. You'll hear that throughout this passage. Let's pray. We'll ask God's guidance, protection, and his, uh, and his hand in this morning's message. Lord God, we are thankful that as a body of people, we get to gather together to worship you. We gather in response to your beckoning to us. And Lord, we look forward to what you are going to do. In fact, Lord, we celebrate what you have already done as the words and the songs we have sung have spoke to us, as we've been able to worship in giving, Lord, as we've been able to worship next to our friends and family who sit next to us. God, this morning, as we continue on in the book of Revelation, we ask that you would guide. We ask that you would speak. Uh, And Lord, we ask that you would protect us. As we know that uh, any message coming from your word is one that uh, the evil one does not want spoken of. So we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to what you want us to see and hear this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you should have turned to Revelation chapter 12 by now. I'm going to read the entire chapter, so follow along, 
or just listen if you'd like. The author John says, Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant as she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, with seven crowns on his head. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days. Verse 7, then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. They did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens rejoice. But terror will come on the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. Verse 13, when the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. She was given two wings like those of a great eagle, so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for a time, times, and half a time. And the dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth. But the earth helped her by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that gushed out from the mouth of the dragon. And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. Then the dragon took his stand on the shore beside the sea. Revelation chapter 12. Sounds like something you would witness by turning on the sci-fi movie channel, yes? That's not easy. In an academic commentary that I use, the chapter begins like this. It says, the visions in chapter 12 form the theological heart of the entire book of Revelation. No pressure, right? Let's look at this chapter as if we are watching theater is in this text, there are three main scenes. Scene one has a woman, a dragon, and a child. Scene two has this epic battle going on. And scene three shows persecution of a woman and her offspring. And we're going to look at each scene to some degree this morning, beginning with scene one. Scene one starts like this in verse one. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. An event of 
great significance. The Greek word for great is literally translated as mega. So what John says is, hey, I'm witnessing this mega event. Have you guys ever seen a mega event? Perhaps it was something that was of huge historical significance. You remember where you were when 9-11 hit, and those events played out on national TV. Or maybe where you were when the JFK motorcade was driving down the street in Dallas and shots rang out. Maybe some other historical event that ended up being mega. That's what you're thinking of. Or perhaps you're thinking of a a man-made event that was pretty huge. You know, a concert of sorts. Woodstock, for those who were around back then. Or maybe the beginning of the opening ceremonies at the Olympics. My family and I on sabbatical got to go to Universal Studios in Florida. Now, for those who don't know, it's a theme park. It has rides. It has all sorts of attractions. And, and it's, it's pretty cool. Now, each night as the park was closing, we got to witness a huge event. See, at the end of every day, the park was closing and and this musical montage, this video montage of video clips that, that, uh, that were part of Universal, it was displayed on these water fountains that were shot up, right? So as we're walking out, these water fountains are shooting up in these, these uh, video clips of, of film that took you back to where you were when you saw them. They were being displayed on there, and, and there was music going, and there was fireworks taking place, and lining the streets was the staff of Universal Studios, thanking you for coming. Good night. Thanks for coming. Come again. We're so glad you came. All this with these things going on in the background, it was epic, at least in my book. It was huge. Maybe you guys don't relate. Maybe your huge event is something that took place in nature. Maybe you were in a tornado sometime. Or maybe you remember the awe you felt the first time you saw the ocean or the Grand Canyon, and you realized, wow, this God we serve is a big God. Again, on sabbatical, my family and I got to do some camping in Colorado where we were camping at high elevation, and we camped in this one valley where there was like huge mountain peaks across the valley, and we witnessed one afternoon a double rainbow. Uh, that is one of the two, and it spanned the entire, the, the entire valley. And later that same evening, we got to see a meteor shower with the stars so close it seemed like you could touch them. It was huge. It was mega. The author John says, I got to see this huge event. So what was the event? Verse 1 and 2. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun with the moon beneath her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Here we get introduced to main character number one, a woman clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, crown of 12 stars. Who is this woman? Well, some people think, because she is giving birth to a son who we'll later see is assumed to be Jesus. Some people think this is Mary, the mother of God. Well, Mary, the mother of God in Scripture, the mother of Jesus in Scripture, was never described like that. God was. 
Psalm 104, the last part of it, last part of verse 2, says you are dressed in a robe of light. So who is this woman? Other people think that this woman represents the Christian church that spans the centuries. The objection to this is it'd be hard to argue that the Christian church birthed or was the mother of the Messiah. So who is this woman? Still others think that this woman represents the ideal Israel. The Israel in Scripture that God intended them to be. Not the Israel that we saw played out. I mean, several times Israel, the ideal Israel, is depicted as a woman giving birth. Isaiah 26, 17 says, Just as a pregnant woman writhes and cries out in pain as she gives birth, so were we in your presence, Lord. Isaiah 66, before the birth pains even begin, Jerusalem gives birth to a son. Micah 4.10, writhe and groan like a woman in labor, you people of Jerusalem. So does this woman perhaps represent the ideal Israel? Well, 12 stars on her crown, does that represent 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel? It sure seems to represent royalty. So who is she? In the words of Ron Miller, we don't know for sure. So let's look at our character in scene one. Verse three. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and with seven crowns on his head. A large red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns of its seven heads. While in Universal Studio, I got to spend some time in the Harry Potter exhibit. And I thought, oh, sweet, I'm going to compare this dragon to the dragon in Harry Potter. That dragon only has one head. Well, then I thought, what about the Lord of the Rings series and, and Smaug? Isn't that how he's pronounced? That dragon doesn't have seven heads or ten crowns or ten horns or whatever it says. Crazy, this dragon. Now, allusions to dragons were not uncommon in the Old Testament. John's readers would have heard him talking about a dragon and made immediate connection to their description. Typically, these dragons, great beasts, sometimes called like Leviathan, spoke metaphorically of all of Israel's enemies. Isaiah 27, In that day the Lord will take his terrible swift sword and punish Leviathan, the swiftly moving serpent, the coiling, writhing serpent. He will kill the dragon of the sea. Are you picturing this dragon? Good. Keep picturing it. Because in verse 4, it begins like this. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. Now, verse 9, we get to see that this dragon is named Satan or the devil. And it is often said that Satan took a third of the angels in heaven with him when he was cast out of heaven. And many people believe that Isaiah 14.12 is a reference to Satan. And in that verse, he's called the shining star. So as a, as a star, perhaps the sweeping of a third of the stars represents the third of the angels that fell. Now, two weeks ago, Ron taught, and he showed us in chapter 9 of Revelation, that it says a star had fallen to the earth from the sky, and it was given a key to the bottomless pit. What about this number one-third? Was it an exact number? Well, we don't know. 
But it sure seems to represent that this dragon had a lot of power. Now we can also see that this dragon did not want the child that was about to be born to survive. Second half of verse 4. It says, This dragon stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. Now, the dragon had prime uh, geographical location to eat the baby when it was born, but that didn't happen. We get to see the third character introduced in this scene at the beginning of verse 5. It says, The woman gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod. Who was this baby? Well, there's not too much discussion on this. Most scholars, most people believe this baby is Jesus, or it symbolizes Jesus. I mean, how do they know? Well, in a psalm that is believed to be speaking prophetically about Jesus, uh, the coming Messiah, we see King David write this in Psalm 2. He says, For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, on my holy mountain. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Only ask, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. You will rule them with an iron rod. That's what this says in the beginning of verse 5. Rule the nations with an iron rod. Now in words written in red, earlier in this book, Revelation chapter 2, verse 27, we see Jesus sharing this power to rule with an iron rod with the church and the believers in Thyatira. So track with me here. If we're assuming that if we're assuming the baby born at the beginning of verse 5 is Jesus, if that's the case, then the rest of verse 5 is interesting. So she gave birth to a son who was to rule all the nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and caught up to God and his throne. Snatched away, caught up. These are very similar words, if not the exact same words used to describe the believers being caught up to meet the Lord in the air in 1 Thessalonians. It was a similar word that Paul used when he talked about being caught up in the third heavens in 2 Corinthians 12. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 9, when Jesus ascended, it says he was lifted up. So if the author John is talking about Jesus' birth here at the beginning of verse 5, you notice he immediately skips all the earthly life and jumps to the ascension. Interesting. He places Jesus at God's right hand, in the throne room of heaven. Why would John do that? Was it too long of a story to add some of his earthly life in, in Revelation? Did he look down and realize he only had so much ink left for his pen? And Well, we're going to skip a large portion here. Perhaps John is making a bigger picture. He's painting something else here. In this book that's about revealing Jesus... And that's about the, the upcoming tribulations, the upcoming trials. Perhaps John is trying to portray to his listeners a Jesus who has already won. A Jesus who has already claimed victory by God's intervening power. He's not painting the picture of a carpenter from Galilee. He's painting the picture of a risen and exalted Lord. Maybe that's what he wanted his readers to see. Now, scene one ends with the woman fleeing. Verse 6. 
And the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days. A couple of things to understand in this verse. Flight to the wilderness was not a new motif for the Israelite people. I mean, Israel had fled the Egyptians and they were in the wilderness for quite some time. The prophet Elijah ran to the wilderness when he had predicted no rain and and King Ahab wasn't very happy. Joseph and Mary, Jesus' earthly parents, also fled to escape the wrath of King Herod. So the wilderness, for the listeners of this passage, the original listeners, was not a place of desolate wasteland inhabited by evil spirits that we may assume the wilderness to be. The wilderness, for them, was a place of divine protection, divine provision. Israel had manna for 40 years. Elijah had food from ravens by the brook. Jesus' parents had all they needed. So in a verse like verse 6, the focus needs to shift away from where she fled to the act of God's provision. The text says she fled to a place where God had prepared to care for her. Why would she need care? And why would she need care for 1,260 days? Who's a math genius? Christy. 1,260 days, uh, not to put any pressure on Christy, anybody with a calculator can do this, okay? If we assume that the average month has 30 days, how many months is 1,260 days? 42. Wow, you may have just lost your math genius status. Thank you, David. 42 months. (laughs) Is this an exact number? We don't know. But it does correspond to some of the things that this author has been writing about in terms of times of attack and tribulations that that John had said both before this passage and after this passage. Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2. John says, Then I was given a measuring stick, and I was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count the number of worshipers. But don't measure the outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Chapter 13, verse 5. The beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God, and he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. Huh. God provided for this woman for 1,260 days. Scene one, a woman, a dragon, a man, child, times of persecution, this miraculous escape. What is John trying to say? Well, that's the end of scene one. Let's move to scene two. And let's see what happens. Scene two begins like this in verse seven, eight, and nine. It says, then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. Oh, that's a cool, that's a cool scene. I mean, you got this war going on in heaven. It's Michael, the archangel, and all of his crew doing battle against Satan and all of his cronies. And, well, here's, the, here's the, what happens. The good guys win. The bad guys lose. 
and they get kicked out. You had to figure this was coming because Michael, as an archangel, was said to be one who would be the guardian of Israel and deliver them from their time of tribulation. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael, the archangel, who stands guard over your nation, will arise. So the question has to be asked, when did this happen? This battle of good angels versus bad angels. When did Satan get whooped and get kicked out of heaven? Was this the second binding of Satan so often associated with the death and resurrection of Christ? When Christ was hanging on the cross and he said, it is finished, did Satan get kicked out then? Was this what Jesus was referencing when his disciples came back from healing and, and casting out demons in Luke chapter 7, or excuse me, Luke chapter 10? Luke chapter 10 says this, when the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to Jesus, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, Jesus told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Did this good angel versus bad angel battle happen before humans were even created at the beginning of Genesis? Or did it happen at the end, right before Jesus comes back again? There are people who will argue for each of those different times when it takes place. Bottom line, we don't know. What we do know is Satan lost. Satan lost. And it's a good thing. The name Satan, the word Satan means adversary. Devil means slanderer. Satan had played the role of accuser of God's people throughout the pages of Scripture, from Eve at the beginning all the way to, to the false prophets trying to deceive God's people at the end. Satan had wreaked havoc on the people in Scripture. So it's no wonder that when he fell, when his cronies fell, whenever that took place, it's no wonder that a voice in heaven burst forth in joyful praise. Verse 10, then I heard a voice shouting across the heavens, it's come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night, and they have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. They did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens rejoice. We could spend an entire sermon just on that. I mean, that passage is rich. But since we don't have another hour to spend on it, I'll just tell you this. Satan lost. God's salvation, God's power, God's kingdom, Christ's authority has come, and the accuser was cast out. He was beat by what? It says in here, by the blood of the Lamb. Yeah, we sang a song, didn't we? Or is that the ending song? Okay, we sang a song that had that in there. Defeated by the blood of the Lamb. But did you catch what else was in there that aided in that defeat? The word of our testimony. Verse 11. They defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. They didn't love their lives so much that they were not willing to die. Now, in no way do I intend to glamorize what took place a couple of weeks ago in the community in Roseburg. But that's been heavy on my heart because a mentor of mine actually pastors there in that city. School shootings are terrible, okay? 
Did you read what the shooter asked before he started killing people? Are you religious? Are you a Christian? Those that said yes, those that gave witness to Jesus, those that lived their testimony, lost their lives. And though it may not seem like, especially to the families who are still grieving, it seems like evil won, but it didn't. Satan lost. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, That's why the voice from heaven cried out, Rejoice! Rejoice, you who live in heaven! And the curtain falls on scene two, but quickly raises again for scene three. The second half of verse 12. But terror will come on the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. We'll keep going. Verse 13 and following. When the dragon realized he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But she was given two wings like those of a great eagle so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for a time, times, and half a time. Verse 15. Then the dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth. But the earth helped her by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that gushed out from the mouth of the dragon. And the dragon was angry at the woman the woman, and declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. Then the dragon took his stand on the shore beside the sea. Here again, we could probably spend hours just looking at scene three. We can look at all the imagery in this passage and tie it back to Israelites' story. The pursuit of the woman would be similar to the pursuit of the Israelites as they fled Egypt. The two eagles' wings, this echoes what God said on Mount Sinai. The river of water from the dragon's mouth, perhaps a reference to Pharaoh trying to drown the babies in the, in the river, or, or a reference to the Israelites crossing the Red Sea and the Jordan River. The opening up of the earth Reminiscent of when the earth opened up and swallowed the rebellious Korah and his followers. Was John trying to make these connections in this passage? Or was he simply unpacking the first scene even more? The dragon pursued the woman. The woman was given supernatural protection, nourishment, care. Satan was not pleased and widened and expanded his rage due to the hatred of the male child, In this chapter, what is John trying to say to his original listeners? We don't know for sure. We could look at this entire chapter from multiple different angles to try and say, what is he trying to tell them? But maybe the question we need to ask this morning is, what is he trying to tell us? What should we get out of a theater scene like this? I see several take-home points. The first is this. Kids, if you're filling out your bulletin, you're at that last section. The first take-home point today, Satan is real, and he has real power. He was no joke in our story, sweeping away one-third of the angels in heaven. And he's no joke still today. His power is real, as is his hatred for Jesus and his followers. That's why the Apostle Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. He said, stay alert. 
Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your Christian brothers and sisters all over the world are going through the same kind of suffering that you are. Satan is real. I'll take home point number two ties into the end of that verse. Persecution has and will continue to take place. If we were to view the woman in this story as the church, and if we view the offspring that is mentioned at the end, the rest of her children as God's commands, those that maintain their testimony, we see that in verse 17 and verse 11, if we view that as us, then it's safe to say that persecution will take place. Tribulation will happen. Satan will continue to hunt down Jesus' followers. And we shouldn't expect anything else. Jesus told us that. John chapter 15. He said, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. He said, since they persecuted me, naturally they'll persecute you. They will do this to you because of me. Satan is real and persecution will continue to happen. Now, will this persecution always look like someone trying to kill us? Would it always look like ISIS lining up a group of, of Christians and mass murdering them? No, not always. There's going to be times where it is a physical persecution. But there's going to be times where it's an emotional persecution. Satan could wreak havoc on your inner life for years and years and years. It could be spiritual persecution as well. He could cause doubts, questions, desires to leave the faith. Hey, Satan, excuse me, life as a follower of Christ is not going to be easy. But as our story shows, God will provide spiritual protection. Our third take-home is this. God will provide spiritual protection. Our wilderness, which we might call our difficult times, will be times where God sustains us. There, God will give us rest and nourishment. Psalm 91, the psalmist says, Those in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God and I trust Him. For He will rescue you from every trap and protect you from deadly disease. He will cover you with His feathers. He will shelter you with His wings. Sound familiar? His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Now out of this place of rest, out of this place of nourishment, a closeness and intimacy with the Father, we will be able to stand against the devil. If you read Nathan's leadership lines this past week leading up to this week, he referenced this verse. James chapter 4 verse 7, it says, Humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Satan is real. Persecution will happen. God will sustain and nourish us. And ultimately, fourth take-home point, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. The blood of the Lamb has won. God's salvation, God's power, God's kingdom, the authority of Jesus still stands today. And one day, Jesus will return. Amen? The end of this book Revelation chapter 22, John says this. Actually, it's Jesus who says this. Verse 7, he says, look, I'm coming soon. 
Blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. Now you go down to verse 12. Jesus says again, look, I'm coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. If we hadn't understood it or believed it after twice, Jesus says it a third time in verse 20. He who was faithful, he who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Isn't that great? I mean, for all the times we have said, and Ron has said in this passage, this study in Revelation, we don't know, we know that Jesus is coming back. And we can take great courage in that. We can proclaim with the gospel writer John, come Lord Jesus, come. The book of Revelation, does it leave us confused? Sometimes. Does it leave us encouraged? Hopefully. Three scenes in Revelation chapter 12. We've got one final sermon from this book next week. Hopefully God continues to speak. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we admit we, we could look at this passage and we could, we could see it as fantasy. We could see it as things that are, are made up to scare us. We can see it as things that would just have people outside the faith looking at it and saying, man, that's crazy. But we also recognize, Lord, that you're telling a story, and the story is true. We thank you that you have won, that by the blood of your Son, you have overcome. We thank you that the victory is already yours. And Lord, we thank you that in the midst of what we will experience, the trials and the persecution and the tribulations that will come, we thank you that you will provide protection and nourishment for us. God, help us to gravitate towards that, to hold on to that. Even if we're confused by some of the things this book says, help us to know that you're in charge, that you have won and you are coming back. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to finish this morning by taking communion together. And I will invite, when the time comes, any who claim Christ as Lord to come and take it with us. This, uh, this Lord's Supper, instituted by Jesus, reminds us of Jesus' ultimate victory. Yes, it reminds us as the bread that Jesus' body was broken. The cup reminds us that His blood was shed. The blood of the Lamb. We can take it and we can believe that in a very real way, this is Jesus providing for us spiritual sustenance as we continue to seek his face in the reality of our present situations. I'm going to pray again. I'm going to serve the worship team. And then I'll invite you guys up to come and take when you are ready. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we take this time to pause and thank you for instituting a meal like this, where the bread does remind us of your broken body, where the cup does remind us of your blood shed for us and of the new covenant of the forgiveness of sins. Lord, even though it's just a small bite of bread and a small drink of juice, I pray that you would nourish us through it, physically, spiritually, emotionally. By partaking this morning, may we 
but remember why we take it. And may we be drawn into the story. Bless the elements. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.